Hey everyone, this is Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Cape Up. Ali Nirani is the executive director of the National Immigration Forum. So he's just the person to talk to about the latest on DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program instituted by President Obama, rescinded by President Trump, but with an effective date that gives Congress time to come up with a legislative fix. Then our conversation gets into the overall immigration issue and how Nirani believes the successful movement to end the ban on gays serving openly in the military was an epiphany moment for him and how to move forward on immigration. Listen to what this is all about right now. Ali Nirani, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. Okay. Please bring us up to date on where things are on DACA, Congress, the president. Where are we? So we've got two hours. (laughs) (laughs) No. No. All right. So uh, DACA, let me just do the quick uh, explanation of the program. Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. This was a program created by President Obama in the summer of 2012 to protect about 750,000 young people from deportation doesn't grant them citizenship, just uh, grants them legal status and work authorization. Candidate Trump ran on a platform where he promised to rescind DACA day one of of his administration. He waited till September 5th of this year to have Attorney General Sessions go out and rescind the program. But it wasn't a quick, you know, it wasn't like ripping the bandaid off. What Sessions said is that there's a six-month window from September 5th to March 5th where renewals will be entertained, but there will be no new applications. But then on March 5th, the program in essence will sunset. So where we are right now is trying to get members of Congress, Republicans and Democrats to work together to pass a legislative solution for this population. And that takes you back to, you know, versions of the DREAM Act, first introduced by Senators Hatch and Durbin, to more recent versions that would kind of limit the number of people who are eligible. But today we are in a place where we're looking at about a December 8th deadline for Congress to pass a funding bill. There's an effort to try to attach DREAM Act legislation, legislation to protect this population, to that budget bill. So we've got a few months to work with, but we've got really just a few days to try to get this thing attached to the funding bill. Okay. And so now talk about the political dynamics at work here. So attaching a DREAM Act bill to the budget bill, why do that? Who's pushing for it? And what are the chances of passage? So the upside of attaching something as controversial as immigration legislation to a must-pass piece of legislation such as the funding bill means that there's a high incentive on the part of both parties to find a compromise. The incentive is actually higher for Speaker Ryan and Leader McConnell because at the end of the day, they're going to depend on a high number of Democratic votes to get that funding bill across the finish line. So Democrats go into this period with a certain amount of leverage because it's a must-pass bill. They know that their votes are needed. And as a result, they have some amount of control over what is in that legislation with respect to DREAMers. There could be a compromise where you have a clean DREAM Act. There will more likely be a compromise where you have protection for DREAMers plus some sort of enforcement. There's a lot of talk about border enforcement, everything from wall to infrastructure. But the point here is that the funding bill is must pass. It needs Democratic support. Therefore, Democrats can apply pressure on Republican leadership to say, you want my vote? I want protection for dreamers. Now, what happens, though, we're, we're talking about a Republican caucus. Republicans control the House and the Senate. And you're talking about a Republican caucus that is even 
further to the right than the initial group that came in in 2010. They don't care about compromise. They don't want to do anything with the Democrats. Their base is really dead set against doing anything with the Democrats. So why would Speaker Ryan and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell compromise with Democrats to get the budget thing through? Why not just come up with a budget bill that can just pass with their majorities alone? I'm not sure there are enough House Republicans to support a budget bill that's large enough to keep the government open without DREAM Act. That's what history has shown us, is that every time Speaker Ryan tries to pass a funding bill to keep the government open, he needs a lot of Democrats to jump on board. So that's why Democrats have a certain amount of leverage in this case. But the, the larger point here is that actually there is Republican support for immigration reform, specifically when you talk about something like the DREAM Act or Protection for Dreamers. In the middle of September, Fox News ran a poll, usually pretty conservative, right? They found across the general population, 83% of voters wanted a protection for dreamers. 63% of Trump voters at that point also wanted protection for dreamers. Mm. I would argue that number has probably increased in support since September. So Republicans, whether they're in the House or the Senate, they can go back to their constituents and find support. You know, we've been working in our space as the National Immigration Forum for the last five years to bring up conservative support from faith, law enforcement, and business leaders. So it's a false assumption on the part of Republicans to think that their base is not with them on this. Their base is, yes, part of a debate, but there are a large number of Republican voters who want a solution. Part of the solution here in terms of when you talk about will dreamers be a part of the funding bill and things is that there will be this trade-off. We'll give you dreamers if you give us the wall. How real is that? You know, when you talk to somebody who's actually steeped in national security, border security, actual policy, I have yet to meet somebody who says a wall will improve our border security. For us, we think we do need to improve border security, so let's invest dollars in ports of entry. If we were to spend $6 billion of ports of entry, that is where actually the majority of drugs, guns, and money are being smuggled. Along the Rio Grande River, there is an invasive cane. It's called a Carrizo cane. It's about eight feet high. People are able to hide in that cane. You plow down that cane for less than $100 million across the river, you actually improve sight lines so that Puerto Patrol can see across. Those are two cost-effective measures that can be put into motion that, at the end of the day, improve security. A border wall doesn't do that. Okay. On border security, I, whenever I hear that argument being made, particularly by Republicans, I keep thinking, well, the illegal crossings over the border are down, that former President Barack Obama was so into enforcing the law and deportations that he was dubbed the deporter in chief. Right. So is that a real argument that the border is porous and all these people are coming over the border and marauding Americans in some I don't even know the word I'm right. looking for. But you know what <laughs> right, you know right, what right. I mean. We're not being invaded. Let's put it that way. The fact is that net migration, net crossings with Mexico are zero. They have been at zero for a number of years. The massive investment in border security and interior enforcement by the Obama administration has frankly driven those numbers down, and you just have fewer and fewer people entering the country illegally, much less overstaying a visa. So it is a false argument, but it's an emotional argument. And that's the thing about immigration. The policy comes way, way, way after the emotional triggers that people are driven by. They're driven by concerns around security or concerns around the economy, concerns around culture. So how as advocates do you 
understand what the anxieties are, and then get people to a yes. And I want to get to those those emotional triggers in a moment, but we've got to talk about somebody in all this who I don't think we've even mentioned. We've mentioned Speaker Ryan. We've mentioned Leader McConnell. We haven't talked about President Trump. Does he even factor in any of this? You know, so let's go back to that September 5th announcement when the attorney general went out and said, I'm going to, you know, we're going to rescind this program and sunset it starting March 5th. The amazing part about it is that two days later, President Trump realized that what he was doing was going against public opinion in a really, really visceral way. So within two days, he's tweeting out that, you know, if Congress doesn't get to a solution, that he'll consider extending the program. I think at the end of the day, and these are his words, President Trump wants to find a solution that makes, quote, everybody happy. He's going to get to a place come March if Congress hasn't found a solution where nobody's going to be happy and people are going to be very angry with him. How he reacts at that moment is going to be really interesting because he could throw congressional Republicans under the bus, extend the program. He could try to, you know, really leverage congressional Republicans and try to, you know, really get a bill through. But President Trump, he has a lot to lose here. And I think he realizes that if Congress doesn't get to a solution, it will be his fault. The timeline in terms of what you were just saying, that's in March, the March 5th deadline. But what we're looking at in December is something right now. So the president has to put his shoulder, like he's got to pick up the phone and, and work the phone. Doesn't he have to do Exa- something here? So I think the president, and this is the challenging part of where we are right now. I think the president has been led to believe by some House and Senate Republicans that waiting till March is a better solution. But so you, let's look at the period between January and March. You're going to have Steve Bannon running primary candidates against every Republican he can. You're going to have Democrats highly energized. We already saw a massive turnout in youth and women in Virginia. So the environment is going to get harder and harder for Republicans to reach a compromise with Democrats in the new year. Let's attach this legislation to a must-pass bill like the funding bill in December, and let's get to a solution where President Trump and Republicans can hold up and say, you know what, (coughs) women, children, dreamers, we got to a solution. And that's just an important thing for, I think, Trump and Republicans to hold up in terms of you know, frankly, getting to really difficult solutions. Okay, so let's talk about the the emotional triggers that you were talking about before, because that is a great segue into your book, There Goes the Neighborhood, How Communities Overcome Prejudice and Meet the Challenge of American Immigration. You, You write, we fail to understand the seriousness of the nation's cultural crisis. We were having a political debate when the country was having a cultural debate. Talk about that. So in the book, I start on one particular day. Uh, December 18, 2010. On that day, two things happened. One is in the morning, the DREAM Act was defeated. In the afternoon, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was successfully repealed. So I looked at the two movements. Those who were advocating for the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, they made a case to the American public based on the question of what does it mean to serve your nation openly and freely? It wasn't a case being made on politics or policy. And they were successful. Those of us in the immigrant rights movement, we registered voters, we turned them out, we focused on, at that point, Colorado and Nevada to try to make sure the Democrats stayed in control. We won the politics, but we lost the debate. Because I think that for the majority of Americans, immigration is not about politics or policy, it's about culture and values. So when somebody comes from El Salvador into a neighborhood, into a community, that person who's been there for generations, They're asking, is my culture going to change? Are my values going to change? Really, how's my neighborhood going to change? So we've been trying to really, again, understand those anxieties and unpack them and help people get to a place where 
you can have a conversation about policy, but you can't start with policy. And one of the things you, excuse me, I don't know if you actually say these words in the book, and I know you said this in an interview, you said that your goal is to meet people where they are but not leave them there, which I thought was a really, that's a, actually a great line. Flesh that out for sure. us. What we get out here is that, you know, so just to, to kind of personalize this, right? So I came into this job to run the National Immigration Forum as kind of your standard left-leaning liberal activist, right? And we were going to run the table, get Democrats, get Latinos registered, and, you know, everything would be rosy. What I realized is that demographics are not destiny. When you look at the Southeast, the Midwest, the Mountain West, as advocates who care about this issue, we had to understand how people were themselves were understanding and grappling it with it. So over the last few years, we've sat down with pastors, police chiefs, business owners, and just tried to understand, okay, why do you care about this? Conservative evangelical pastor, why do you care about this? It's Yes, it's part of your Bible, but it's also part of your church as your congregation is diversifying from a law enforcement perspective. So as an organization, you know, we have found that as we're meeting people where they are, our language and our understanding is changing as we're asking others to change their language and their understanding of the issue. So how receptive were, well, like you said, you came into this, you know, lab, big liberal right. group and liberal leader, and you're going into conservative to communities to talk to them about this. How were you received? In my career, it'll probably be the easiest thing I will ever do and the most interesting thing easy because people want to be a part of a conversation. They see how the country is changing. They see how their communities are changing. Quite frankly, I think conservatives for years have felt like they're the problem on this issue because the left is just is yelling at them. So we are received, you know, as long as we're sitting and listening and respecting somebody, you're received with open arms. It doesn't mean we're agreeing on day one. It doesn't mean that we're walking out the door and heading in the same direction. But we found that if you respect somebody's opinion, over time you can change somebody's opinion. And that's not an easy thing to do in this day and age where so much of our politics is driven by kind of who's loudest. And, you know, what you just said there in your experience chimes with things that we've heard from other guests on, on the podcast, whether it's Joan Williams and her book or Justin Guest and his book, looking at white working class and mm-hmm. Trump voters and how they feel like they are completely ignored, ignored, condescended to, looked down upon, ridiculed. I know in the interviews that Justin Guest did with people in Youngstown, Ohio, he had to hear a lot of things that were racist and sexist and all sorts of things in order to get to the foundation of the person's right. fear and anxiety, which was all centered around either demographic change, cultural change. Economic change. Yes, economic insecurity. Yep. Did you have to do the same thing, mm-hmm. sift through a lot of things that made you wince in order to get to what they really were concerned mm-hmm. about? So for the book, I interviewed about 60 faith law enforcement business leaders. I would say about half of them we have worked with over the time. But this was, for most of them, the first time I'd sat down for an hour and said, OK, let's have a conversation. Let's talk this through. And then the other half were folks that I was connected to. There's one conversation that sticks in my mind is with Harold Smith in Spartanburg, South Carolina. South Carolina has seen the fastest growth in the Hispanic population, second only to North Carolina. Harold tells me about growing up in South Carolina during the civil rights movement, watching it on TV, and not really identifying or or kind of feeling the tension there. And it's on Super Tuesday in March of 16. So, you know, in the background, CNN is flickering, and we start talking about the election, and he tells me that he went to 
the polling booth and voted for Donald Trump. And he explains to me why. And he, I remember this quote, what he tells me, he says, my granddaddy didn't own slaves. My daddy didn't own slaves. I didn't own slaves. Why do I feel like I'm to blame? I just want to go to work like you. Harold's a supporter of immigrants and immigration. We've come to, to get to know his family and worked with him. And he calls me two days after the election. And, you know, I'm sitting on the couch, having moved for a couple days, and um, <laughs> see the phone light up. And I say, hey, Harold, how are you? And he tells me, I'm good. What did you think? I said, well, Harold, you were right. You know, there's something happening in the country that we're just beginning to understand. And I said, well, I'm worried about what he's going to do around immigration. And Harold tells me, don't worry, he was just making a deal. So I said, Harold, if President Trump moves forward with these promises as policy, it's your voice that needs to be heard because it's only your voice that can stop this. And I remember he paused and he said, I know. So I think that there are a number of folks like Harold out there across the country that we work with, that others work with, that are grappling with these questions and want to be a part of a constructive approach. Now, so then the question is, okay, why does somebody like Harold vote for Donald Trump, right? Yeah. There was one piece of research last summer uh, that came out of, from the Gallup's was a, uh, analysis of the Gallup survey. And to, to oversimplify it, what they found is that one of the major factors driving a Trump voter was that they were worried that their child would not do better than them, which is just a, a, you know, a fundamentally emotional, selfish decision that we all would make. And so I just think a lot of people are, that's the core of their worry. So how do we make the case to the American public that immigrants and immigration are a benefit to the American worker and their family. Then how do you make that case when the guy who was elected president on day one said Mexico's not sending their very best, they're not sending you when you, they're, they're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I guess, are good people. That was on day one. Right. And then throughout the campaign, he demagogued and demonized immigrants, immigration, Muslims, the Muslim ban. So how... Please, fill in the blanks, because I think you know where I'm trying to get. So what we've been trying to do is identify the conservative faith, law enforcement, and business leaders that are trusted by conservative voters. For me, the head of the National Immigration Forum to go to Alabama and make a case for immigration, not worth the time, right? Forget it. But to hear that case for immigrants and immigration from their pastor, their police chief, or a business owner, it's a very different conversation. So for us, we've had to almost take a back seat in some ways as a national advocacy organization and really create strategies and vehicles through which local faith, law enforcement, business leaders in conservative parts of the country are, number one, building their understanding of the issue, but then feel comfortable making the case to the public. Mm-hmm. So an example just around DACA. A couple of days before the president decided to pull the, the program, over 3,450 conservative evangelical pastors and church leaders signed a letter to the administration and Congress asking for protections for dreamers and passage of legislation. That didn't happen six months ago. That didn't happen even last year to have that kind of support at a local level. So I think what's happening is that people are realizing that the direction that the Trump is taking the country on immigration cuts against their values. And they realize that it's their voice, like Harold's, that needs to be brought to the fore. Okay, let's talk specifically about these values, because when you said you know, these folks are making the case to the public, what's the case that faith leaders are making to the public? What's the case that law enforcement's making to the public? And what's the case the business leaders are making to the public? Conservative yep. folks yep. in these areas. So there's three issues that I think the most Americans are dealing with here. One is the economy. And the question for people is, are immigrants givers or takers? 
The second is security, are immigrants threats or assets? And the third is culture, are immigrants becoming American or are they living in enclaves? So the question around the economy, so from a business perspective, you know, I'll give you an example of dairy farmers in Idaho. 3% unemployment in southern Idaho, third largest dairy industry in the country. The case they're making to Idaho voters is not one just about economics, but it's the case based on the fact this Latino workforce has been in Idaho for over 10 years. They see them as an extension of their community and their family. So it's a combination of dollars and cents, but this is a community that's giving back to Idaho. That's economy. Second is around security. The case there is that every cop on the corner has taken an oath to serve and protect the entirety of their community. The only way they can do that is to not be seen as an agent of immigration enforcement. Because as soon as that trust is broken, the entire city is less safe. So from a law enforcement perspective, it's really making the case that immigrants are part of a community. They want to live in a safe community just as much as anybody else. And then finally, from the cultural perspective, I think that the case that we need to make and we have been making is that Americans can live in a nation of laws, but also a nation of grace. And it means that we have to help people live in that tension. And a pastor is uniquely positioned to help people understand that the difference and the similarities between being a part of a nation of laws and a nation of grace. As I was listening, the one word that doesn't come out but is infused in all of these things is that there's a moral component here that you can't come at this issue honestly without realizing that you're talking about fellow human beings and treating them with dignity and respect. You know, we've all seen the news articles over the last six months of, you know, the individual in, you know, southern Indiana who was deported and nobody realized he was undocumented. Or maybe they did and they're like, but he's good. Um, Right. right? So I think for a lot of people, they have come to love the Jose or the Muhammad they know, but they still are afraid of or don't trust the Jose or Muhammad they don't know. So how do you take that one relationship and extrapolate it? Yeah, that is the question and has been for decades. But now it's in high relief now that, you know, the genie's out of the bottle. And there's so there's so much hate and distrust that is now just so openly discussed. Exactly. And and. You know, so some of that is taking that one relationship and extrapolating it. A bigger part of it, I think, is trying to understand the cultural or values framework that a person has, their belief in security, in a free market, in their faith, and through that framework, extrapolating that one relationship. And that just takes a long time. Right. All right. And especially when, like you said, the genie is out of the bottle and the environment is so red hot and complicated. What do you think is going to happen now that Congress has got its back up against the wall? It's got to pass a budget and a debt ceiling, and it's got to do something about dreamers. Do you think, gut, that we're actually going to see a good deal? I think we're going to see an environment that is going to get even worse. I think that the narrative that will start to emerge is old and white versus young and brown. And as a result of that really difficult environment, Republicans will get to a place where they are part of a good deal. Um, but I'm worried about the cost to the country, the emotional toll to the country that is going to be exacted through this process. Given everything that mm-hmm. you said, by the time March 5th rolls around, how hopeful are you that we will have weathered this ugly period yeah. that we're, we're going through and about to go through specifically when it comes to dreamers? 
So whether it's March 5th or November 2018 or November 2020, I have never been more excited about working on this issue because for the first time, more people than ever are talking about it and learning about it. For the first time, we're seeing conservative leaders at a local level and national level saying, you know what? I want to get be a part of a solution. So I'm hopeful and optimistic about March 5th, but I'm also incredibly optimistic and excited about the future. Nothing happens easily, and it's just not going to be easy. Ali Narani, executive director of the National Immigration Forum and author of There Goes the Neighborhood, How Communities Overcome Prejudice and Meet the Challenge of American Immigration. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.